Hello and welcome back to the Urology Care Podcast. I have a special guest today and I'm going to let him introduce himself right now. Uh, this is Mark Edney. I'm a urologist in private practice on the Eastern Shore of Maryland in Salisbury. I'm a former lieutenant colonel uh, in the United States Army Reserve uh, and I had uh, done uh, tours of duty overseas in combat support hospitals and I'm also a former member of the American Urologic Association's Legislative Affairs Committee and was uh, part of the leadership uh, team uh, that ultimately led a successful coalition effort to uh, push legislation through a few years back uh, to support uh, the coordination of care uh, for military victims of Eurotrauma, which is what we're going to talk about today. I want to get to what you were talking about a little bit later, but I'm just going to open the interview right now and ask, what is Eurotrauma? So Eurotrauma is a very broad term that describes um, trauma, which is really injury, um, usually from blunt force of some sort or can be penetrating trauma, like a gunshot, to any of the urologic organs. Um, And the urology system starts with uh, the kidneys on down uh, to the uh, to the external urethra, so um, and everything in between. So we're talking about trauma to kidneys, uh, ureter tubes, which bring urine from the kidney to the bladder, injuries to the bladder, and inter- injuries to the, the reproductive system, uh, to the male or female urethra, to the testes or ovaries, um, uterus, um, and male external genitals, uh, which are the, the penis and testicles, obviously. So um, any of those organs uh, really fall under the purview of urotrauma. What are some of the common causes of urotrauma specifically? So the, the causes are different whether we're talking about a military setting um, and versus uh, a civilian setting. Uh, and so when we were overseas and we started to see an uptick, uptick in military urotrauma, it was largely from blast injuries from uh, buried IEDs that would ex- explode in the ground and the blast would come up uh, between a soldier's legs, um, and so uh, most of the foot soldiers being men at that time, um, we saw a lot of external genital urinary trauma um, and penis and testicle injuries, but also some bladder and kidney injuries. Uh, so in a, in a war setting, um, those tend to be the most common uh, causes of, of urotrauma. In the civilian world, um, the most common causes of trauma are things like car accidents, and gunshot wounds and stabbings. And so um, we can certainly see that. Um, certainly in athletics, um, for men, because their external genitals are exposed, um, we see athletic injuries, um, whether it's a baseball or a golf ball or something, striking the external genitals that can cause a, a urotrauma. So um, those are the more common types in the civilian setting. And what are some of the effects um, of, of life after urotrauma? So urotrauma, uh, again, depending on the setting, and, and uh, our focus for the legislation was really the, that military setting, the warfighters who were, who were experiencing these blast injuries um, really suffered um, multiple injuries, not only of the urinary system, but they usually had multiple other injuries that went with it, extremity injuries, amputations, um, a lot of abdominal injuries, and so it was a, a multi-injury process. Mm-hmm. But specifically with the urotrauma, um, there are multiple long-term devastating effects, and that's, that's one of the reasons I became so passionate about it, uh, is because when you think about damage to the genitourinary system, um, you think about um, dysfunction with eliminating waste, both bowel dysfunction, urinary dysfunction, uh, trouble uh, getting rid of urine or urinating in a normal fashion, but also the, the reproductive function, um, the inability um, to have children naturally, um, whether from erectile dysfunction or for damage to the testicles, um, or again, for women. We saw it was actually a minority of female urotrauma. We, you did see it from time to time, mm-hmm. but the majority of what we saw was male. But women were certainly at risk of urotrauma who, were, who were found themselves in, in those situations, and any kind of damage to the uterus, 
vagina um, ovaries could mm -hmm. put their fertility at risk. And so when you deal with these multiple systems yeah. that were at risk afterwards, um, it's, a, it's a very devastating injury with a lot of psychological impact. And so it's a, it's a complicated injury, and that's why I became so passionate about it. In regards to Eurotrauma's consequences in a, in a hypothetical situation, would you recommend that um, because of the risk that young people who are looking to perhaps have children down the line do any preventative measures, be it banking sperms, et cetera? Sure. I, I would say if you're, if you're in, a, in a job, either a civilian job that, that, that puts you at high risk, and primarily this really comes up in a military setting, I think the, the, the folks, the infantry people and the war fighters who are going to be in situations potentially uh, where they're at risk of Eurotrauma, I think uh, pre-banking of sperm is a, a fantastic idea sure. and really should be uh, provided. It's expensive to do that, and then that's something we continue to fight for is for um, for the military to um, work with those individual soldiers. Not necessarily that everybody has to, to bank sperm before they go overseas, but if you are in a, in a job title uh, where you are going to be at particular risk, uh, we strongly believe and continue to fight for um, their ability to, to preserve sperm prior. And just curious, what kind of gear is available for particularly for people in a military setting to, to prevent Eurotrauma? That's a really important question, Casey. And back when we were fighting for this legislation, uh, part of the problem is that the, the gear available at that time um, was, was bulky, and it wasn't, wasn't worn very often because it inhibited um, tactile movement. It was this triangular lead shield that kind of it, it strapped on or strapped onto the, uh, to the bulletproof vest. And it was so bulky and awkward that, that a lot of the warfighters would leave it in their, their housing units when they would out, go out on patrol. And that led to a lot of exposure. The, um, the garments have gotten much better. Um, and so they're blast-proof, flexible. They really look like boxer briefs. Uh, but yeah. but the, the soldiers can put on underneath their, their uh, uniforms, um, and it prevents the, the penetrating um, shrapnel from, from getting in and doing a lot of damage. They're, they're still exposed somewhat to that blunt injury, but the penetrating shrapnel in the body is, is markedly reduced with these newer garments. And they're, they're not opposed to wearing them because it doesn't reduce their, their tactical movements. I kind of want to get back a little bit to what you were saying in the, in the beginning of the interview and, and why this issue is so near and dear to your heart. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to comment on that again and, and kind of the success you had on a legislation? Uh, on a legislative level? Yeah, absolutely. So as, as the, uh, the wars got started in, in Iraq and Afghanistan through 2003, 2004, 2005, what we started to notice was an uptick in the incidence of Eurotrauma. It was going from, you know, somewhere around 1% or 2% of injuries to 5 6 7% of injuries involved some significant Eurotrauma. And we noticed that when these soldiers came back uh, to the United States, the Department of Defense and the Army hospitals were very well equipped by and large and, and had very well-trained, fellowship-trained staff to deal with some of these injuries. And we noticed that when these soldiers then made the transition to the VA, um, oftentimes they were um, lacking for services. They were either at a VA facility that was was remote from specialized services and just had a hard time with the, the coordination of care yeah. that was needed. As we mentioned at the beginning, these are very complicated injuries and they, they involve multiple systems. And so when you think about sort of the bowel issues and the urinary issues and the sexual dysfunction and yeah. layered on top of that, the psychological issues that then develop when you get depression and, and PTSD and, and lots of other things that layer on top of those dysfunctions, these are very complicated cases. Um, and really need a specialized team to be taking yeah. care of them. And we noticed that the, there, there wasn't the level of coordination between the Department of Defense, healthcare network, and the VA. And so that's really what we were fighting for. And so as I, I went over there, I did my tour in 2006 in the Combat Support Hospital, and I was seeing these injuries and became just very, very passionate about these, these, young, these young, largely men, again, 18, 19, 20-year-old men who were 
coming to war, you know, before their reproductive time, and then they were, you know, putting off getting married and putting off their careers to come and fight for our country, um, the least we could do is kind of help make them whole again once they returned home and, and then started to pursue those dreams of getting married and having a family, um, things that we've all been able to to do, uh, but they they uh, they were set back by some of the injuries they were receiving. Uh, I think just we as a country owe it to them to, to do everything we can to provide them the resources and the care and the coordination needed sure. uh, to make life as normal as possible for, for what they've given to their country. Do you have any other final final words you want to get out there before we wrap up the the talk today? I really appreciate you doing this segment. I think it's uh, important to to get the word out and to, to, to raise awareness for this uh, because it's a, it's an injury that that a lot of uh, service members who've suffered with it um, suffer in silence because yeah. it's an embarrassing injury. It's not something you necessarily talk about at the ballpark, you know, when you're watching your kid play baseball. But it's it's out there. Um, it, it's it's more common than you think it is, um, and we need to continue to, to fight for the resources and the care coordination uh, to support these people who have done so much for us. Yeah, on behalf of the Urology Care Foundation and the entire American Urological Association, uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Edney, who has been in our guest today, for his service and his tireless commitment to this to this effort. Thanks very much, Casey. This podcast has been brought to you by the Urology Care Foundation, the official foundation of the American Urological Association. For more information on today's topic and for all things urology health, visit urologyhealth.org.